Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO podcast brought to you by WeCare365. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and we hope there will be lots of insights for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Annabelle Daniel is the CEO of Women's Community Shelters and has been in that role for over nine years. She has primarily worked in the human services sector and has been recognised for her great work, including an OAM in the Queen's Birthday Honours List and runner-up in CEO of the Year in the Third Sector Awards. And boy, does she have some challenges in her role. The Women's Community Shelter provides a place to stay and a safe environment for women experiencing domestic violence. But just imagine for every two women that turn up, one has to be turned away. And in our chat, Annabelle talks through an actual example of those daily really tough decisions. She also discusses why self-care is so important in the sector and explains why proactive counselling is critical for her and her team's mental health. Annabelle provides some very good advice for anybody who wants to pursue a career in the not-for-profit sector, but don't get me wrong, there are many ideas for any sector you may be working in. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to introduce Annabelle Daniel to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Annabelle. Thank you very much for having me, Graham. It's a pleasure to be here. What does care in the workplace mean to you, Annabelle? Um, a, a lot of things, uh, but but for me, it's actually a really focused discipline um, in in the work that we do. Because unless I, from the top, lead care for my staff, and um, you know, and and put in the institutional structures that provide care to them, then they actually can't do the work of caring for the women and kids that we support. And so, for me, um, that's that is around things like. Um, processes and procedures that encourage mental health, processes and procedures that encourage um, staff peer-to-peer debriefing if they've worked in a challenging situation. It's about giving, um, I I give uh, our staff a break between, we shut down between Christmas and New Year each year at our hub because it is a quieter time of the year and I think people need to recharge. Um, I'll generally find another mental health day during the year as well, particularly during COVID as that's adding particular pressures. And caring is also very much front of mind um, for me because at the hub I have an all-female staff, so it's uh, 16 people at the moment. And I'm always really conscious that that um, particularly women are often carrying additional caring responsibilities, mm. um, you know, in addition to the caring work that we do. And that could be, you know, as diverse as, as, as caring for, for young children or teenagers or adult children that have particular needs. It could be about volunteering that people do in their community. It could be about aged parents. And so for me, it's actually caring is about recognising each worker is a whole person and recognising that they have those other commitments and responsibilities and providing support around that. Yeah. You work in a very stressful environment where I'm sure there would be lots of challenges to mental health. Can you just give uh, our audience a quick overview of what the community women's shelters do? Yep. So we work in partnership with local communities to establish 
new crisis accommodation shelters for women and children who are homeless or leaving domestic and family violence. And so over the course of the last nine years, we've actually established nine shelters around New South Wales. And we also do a host of other things now, which includes the next stage of housing after that crisis period where women and kids usually stay for around about three months, but then need another couple of years to get back on their feet after a crisis. And we also do a host of community education programs, high school education programs, and also corporate education programs around domestic and family violence and homelessness. So it's actually a very care-centred kind of work that we do. Very much so. And what's the hardest part of your role? Um, The hardest part of my role? um, Look, I think uh, for me it's about balancing responsibilities because I have to manage upward to to a board of directors, obviously, Mm. Um, and, and also I have to make sure that I set the tone of the organisation for my staff who, you know, will always take their lead from their leaders. And so for me, it's being very rigorous about finding my own balance and building in time for self-care and setting boundaries because that can be a real challenge. In our field, you know, the work is never done. I often say to, you know, if I'm mentoring um, younger women who are coming up through the ranks, I say, you will never get everything done. Like literally you simply have to pick the point at the end of each day where you abandon it, you know, (laughs) it's, Mm. it's, it's abandoned, it's never completed. And so sometimes, you know, those kinds of judgments are are often quite difficult, I think. Yeah, I can, uh, I can really imagine. And it must be a very tumultuous uh, sort of area to work in. And Mm. I I just happened to see this week, it was a study published in the Herald saying, there were 60,000 new women that experienced domestic violence in 2020. Mm. So that's, that's a pretty dramatic increase, isn't it? And um, what can you do to start ramping up to prepare for more people coming through or more women coming through that need, need your assistance and support? Well, I think it's always a matter of um, of raising advocacy and, and awareness that that services exist to support people, and I think that's that's very important because what we know is is that when we can quantify these figures, these are the women and kids who've actually found a place to ask for help. You know, there are all that, and that's the very tip of the iceberg. There's also you know, a number of people that that either can't reach out or don't know that they can reach out mm. for assistance. And that's certainly one of the things that we've found when we've established shelters in communities over the last few years. I remember one in particular. Um, we had about a dozen women who tried to put themselves on a notional waiting list before we'd even opened. Wow. And that that wouldn't have been captured anywhere, but they were waiting for a, a safe place to go to open before they were prepared to leave. Mm. I'd also be interested to hear a little bit about how you establish a community centre, you know, mm. why you choose a certain area, what's involved mm. in helping to launch it, um, you know, funds and that sort of thing, and and, and also, uh, you know, people on the ground to, to assist. Mm. And I think it's that last ingredient that's probably the most important, and that's that's pretty unique in the way that we work. So if I were to describe us, I would call us essentially a social franchise model. So at at the hub at Women's Community Shelters, what we do is we provide 
the project management support, which is to walk alongside a local community that has identified a need for more women and kids. Mm -hmm. And that means we find the local champions in the community. We bring them together as a steering committee. We walk through a a series of steps that you need to incorporate a little organisation, get it charity status, find the right place to operate as the shelter and the people to be involved. Um, The second part of what we do is provide funding support. So if a community fundraised $25,000, we would match that from our philanthropic funding and say that's, I would then go to my board and say, right, this community's got skin in the game. They would like to to start a shelter. Um, The third part of what we do is intellectual property. So all of the policies and procedures that you need to actually run an organisation on a day-to-day basis, we have that. The computer system, you know, the job descriptions, the templates, the, you know, the the agendas for the meetings, the, you know, the safety plans, all of those things we have. And so that can be provided essentially in a bundle to this new organisation. And then the fourth part of what we do is join everybody together in a network. So the boards for each shelter talk to one another, the shelter managers engage in best practice and we get the staff together as well. So it, it really is the the you know, that whole suite of, of walking alongside a community, bringing people to the work who might never have been involved um, in domestic and family violence or women's homelessness before, but have a drive to do something about it in their local community. Yeah, I love that, um, you know, the community has to contribute as well and um, mm. so that there's, you know, equal commitment on both sides. Mm. Is, it, is it councils that do that or, uh, you know, service clubs? Where does it typically come from? The Look, yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's come from a variety of means. You know, in, in one example, it was a local sporting club that ran a gala and raised the money that they needed. Um, others, it's been put together with crowdfunding campaigns or a combination of philanthropic support on the ground and, and crowdfunding, local grants, also all sorts of you know, ways it's been put together. But but in the way that we did our model, that was a threshold that we set because that's that together with our contribution is about half the setup costs for um, a sh- to, to get a shelter off the ground in, in a property in a local community. So, um, and, and the commitment's been fantastic. Every community we've worked with has has managed that without too much trouble because it gives, it gives people a call to action um, and that's been really powerful. Yeah. You started yeah. as a lawyer. Um, I did. Explain <laughs> to uh, our, our listeners how you evolved your role now. Well, I wanted to be a lawyer because my best friend in high school, who is still my best friend, um, <laughs> thought she wanted to study it. And I thought, oh, that'd be really cool. I'll do that too. We can go to uni together. <laughs> and I... Um, I didn't get into law in the first round, but I did get in. Um, I did get in for my second year, and and she actually pursued other things and did politics. And I, uh, so I had studied law, but I kind of got sucked into this pipeline of thinking that success for for a law graduate was to get a position in a big city law firm. And I did, mm-hmm. I did get that. But after about nine months, I just realised I was a square peg in a round hole. I was never going to be a fit for a commercial law environment. And so I spent a couple of years in the career wilderness and then and then actually joined the Federal Public Service where I was working in and around child and family issues for most of my career. Um, and that's what brought me around to this kind of thing. I had always had a bit of a bit of a yen for, for social justice issues. It had been a bit of a theme in my studies and I felt much more at home. In, in this kind of domain, but I have to say 
that a good knowledge of constitutional law, federalism, um, and, uh, and, and Australian politics has served me incredibly well um, in a CEO role. I'm sure, I'm sure. When you think about um, your career, and especially in the, in the early, early stages, who were your mentors? Who, who did you sort of learn from about leadership? Yeah, look, I think I think my my early good bosses were probably the most influential people, um, and I had I had a couple of them who were just incredibly different. You know, I had a a wonderfully knowledgeable um, female boss um, at when I was at the Commonwealth Ombudsman, and she was just great for. You know, she was very, very good for getting me to go back to basics and and return to source documents, and you know, just just as a way of focusing my thinking and getting to grips with things. And I had, you know, another boss when I was working at what was then the Child Support Agency, who was just a great people person and a good team leader. And and I think that's, you know, when I think of my good bosses in the past, they were the people who influenced me very much in the early days. And it was actually um, my boss who who used to take me back to basics who sort of really encouraged me to get out there and fly on my own a little about 15 years ago. And, 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 you know, I had felt a real yen to run my own thing and to, you know, to take, take control of my own show. And so it was under, you know, it was, it was kind of with her blessing and support that, that I actually left the Commonwealth Ombudsman and, and went to manage Elsie Women's uh, Refuge, which is the oldest established one in Australia. Wow. It often does take a great boss to encourage you to do those things, doesn't it, and uh, realise that you're best off to give it a shot and uh, mm. whatever whatever happens, you'll learn from it. And uh, mm. there's one lesson which is pretty um, commonly shared in this podcast. It's, uh, you know, if, if they had to go back and give themselves their advice as a 20-year-old, it would be to, you know, have more of a go, you know, not, don't be afraid mm. to, to run with it and have a shot. So you mm-hmm. had, had a, a boss that um, supported that. What mm. other support did you need to enter into doing something for yourself? Um, look, I think I think that first time that I did that, that I kind of struck out and and, and went to to manage my own service. Um, it was the license from the boss that I needed. Uh, but it was a couple of years later. I think that I just that it was my own support and backing that became most important because after I had managed Elsie Women's Refuge for a while, I had to go back to the public service. I'd taken some leave, mm-hmm. and and I had to go back. Mm-hmm. And I went back and I spent the next 12 months feeling really grumpy, knowing that I'd found this work that, that I really felt my, my heart was there. And so I had, and, and then this, the, the opportunity to work with the founding board of Women's Community Shelters came up and, and that was a real fork in the road moment. And it was a fork in the road moment for me personally as well as professionally. I could see a really assured career track, great leave, great superannuation up into the senior echelons of the public service, mm. or I could junk everything, join this um, startup charity where I would literally have a desk and a phone mm. and have to make it all happen myself, you know, to get out there and make it happen. So, and, you know, and also at that time, um, my marriage had broken down. I'd just become a single parent. I'd taken on a Sydney mortgage on my own, so the risk factor was absolutely through the roof. And I had no choice but to back myself. And I think 
you know, putting yourself right out there on that limb and saying, right, this is on you to make it work um, is probably the bravest thing I've ever done and um, and returned in the end the biggest reward because it, it really built my own confidence in my ability to fly on that. And uh, reward often does follow risk, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, many people. <laughs> Uh, you know, have the biggest breakthrough when they try something new or even when something doesn't work and puts them in a different direction. But, Mm. you know, you're evolving and learning. And Mm. uh, with your experience in the Elsie Shelter, Mm. how did that contribute to your first year of planning for the community women's shelters? I think what it did was... I had, like, I'll be honest, it popped my middle-class bubble in a really big way. You know, I had experienced relationship separation and marriage breakdown myself, Mm. but I was working in an environment where there were women and children who experienced multiple and complex and intersecting disadvantages of, you know, abuse, the care of penalty, financial abuse, you know, that they... That, that literally um, every uh, every gender disadvantage that women face was right there in front of me. You know, you could not you could not walk away from it. My office is you, you know the the office is in the refuge in the shelter, mm. and so you are supporting women and kids every single day. And I think that really brought home to me how important this work was. It made it very tangible and it made it very real. Mm. And that was what really fired that outrage in me that there just wasn't a safe room, a safe bed available for everybody who might need one because, you know, every single day if we happen to have a vacancy, there'd be three clipboards on a desk in front of me and I'd have to make Sophie's choice every day about who we would take and who we wouldn't. And so... You know, if if you have got a social justice bent, you know, if you've got those bones in your body, that is absolutely unacceptable and it will light a fire to, to change. And so, you know, for me, it was that role that really set the stage for this next part. And you mentioned that there's often three people waiting for every vacancy mm. that comes up. How do you mm. assess which one you accept and which you have to tragically turn away? Oh, look, it is it is incredibly difficult and you do it based on risk. And I'll give you an example um, of, you know, of one particular day. So on those three clipboards, you know, you've got this one room available and the first call comes from the local police station and the police station, you know, the, the officer says, look, I've got a young Aboriginal mother here. She's got a three kids with her. She's been physically assaulted Um, you know, we're going to take her up to the hospital now, but she needs somewhere safe to come with her kids. Could you take her? Mm -hmm. And then on the next clipboard, there's the social worker from RPA Hospital who says, I've got a mother in here who gave birth to premature twins four weeks ago. We We can't let her go home because we know that there's DV at home. So we're actually going to have to take the babies into care if she doesn't have a safe place to go. And then the third call is from a mum who's been living in her car with her teenage son and daughter over the weekend in Wollongong who says, I will put my last $30 in petrol in the car and drive up to Sydney if you can give me that room. Mm. And so those are the kinds of choices that you make. Mm. And so in that situation, 
our assessment was that the mother with the premature twins was at the greatest risk. You know, she needed to be kept together with her little babies. Mm. And so we brought her into the shelter. And what we did was we knew that there was likely to be a vacancy coming up in, an, in another couple of days because one of the mothers who was already with us um, had made a lease application for a property and was likely to be able to move out. Mm. So we supported the young Aboriginal mum um, in a nearby motel for a couple of nights before we could bring her in. And then we made a host of phone calls and were able to locate a service that had just had a vacancy that was closer to Wollongong for the other mum with her teenagers so she didn't have to drive up to Sydney. But those are the kinds of miracles that you pull off every single day on the front line in domestic and family violence services. That's how urgent it is. That's how, you know, that's how you know, in the heart these stories are because I don't I don't think people realise that, you know, we are essentially a fourth emergency service in a lot of ways yeah. um, for women and kids in crisis. Yeah, yeah. And with, uh, you know, this, I, I saw that um, you had attended a course at Harvard, not mm. a strategic leadership course, how did you find that? What what were the key takeaways for you from that? Oh, look, that was incredibly interesting. So that was strategic perspectives in nonprofit management. Mm-hmm. And it was about a, a seven or eight day course. It was very intense. But what it did, what it does is it brings together nonprofit leaders all over the world and puts them in the one room. And you've got all of this pre-work to do that is um, case studies about particular nonprofits and about businesses. And for me, it was just fascinating because I think more than anything, it gave me such a boost in confidence to know that the work that we were doing at Women's Community Shelters and that the model that we had developed could hold its own on a world stage and was, you know, a viable and translatable way of solving social problems. And for me to be able to, I guess, measure myself against my peers from from around the world hear from them and learn from them, made that an experience that I just keep going back to. Like I've got a book which is about this thick of, you know, sort of notes and colouring ins and, and, and you know, all of these coloured pens which I love to use. And, um, you know, it's just it was, it was a life-changing experience in that respect and, and just really helped me take things to the next level. And did you form friendships with some of the people there that have continued on since you, since you returned? Yeah, we, we stay in touch on Twitter um, and a, a lot of, you know, and, and that supportive element really remains. I think there's, there's a real, when you get the opportunity to spend time with, with other chief executives, there's a real camaraderie that develops because so many of the challenges that we work with, no matter what we're doing, are the same. You know, there's <laughs> the structure of the nonprofit sector is essentially the same. Many of us work, work to boards you know, most of us have staff challenges to deal with. Most of us work with funders and have funding challenges. I mean, you know, what's not to get along with? We we <laughs> we get we get the sector, and so um, it's it's great to be able to provide support peer to peer. Yeah, I used to work in recruitment for about fifteen years, and I always used to find it amusing where people would say, "Our industry is really different. It's really competitive." Yeah. It's hard to get good <laughs> people and it's changing quickly. <laughs> like, that's, I've heard that before, believe it or not. I've heard it before. <laughs> mm. Thanks for being part of the Care First movement. You may be interested in some free resources that we've prepared at wecare365.com.au. 
First resource is a building a mentally healthy culture checklist, which contains all the elements that you'll need to prepare and launch a mentally healthy workplace program and how to build momentum for up to a year after that launch. The second resource is how to support a teammate or a loved one in distress poster. This provides guidance about how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the are you okay conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help they need. These resources can be found at wecare365.com.au. Any uh, books or videos or people that you've um, observed that you found particularly interesting and, and uh, relevant for you? That's, that's really fascinating. I tend to pick up things here and there. Um, I, one, of my, one of my majors during my degree, I actually did philosophy honours of all things um, as part of my arts degree. I love following things like, um, uh, like the School of Life, oddly enough. I, I often find that they'll often have a reset or a perspective that I find very useful. Um, I also love um, following um, The Marginalian, which is Maria Popova, who you know, just has little vignettes from, yep. you know, from literature or songs or poems or or popular culture that just puts a different slant on things. So I actually really find, um, for me, educational value in anything that takes a completely different angle on, you know, on a perspective or a point of view. I tend not to overdose on the leadership stuff too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I and I have a kind of a funny perspective on this in some senses is I also, is I think I've always had the point of view and it's perhaps stronger even in the last couple of years that there is no point spending too much time worrying about your deficits or the things that you don't do particularly well. Mm. You actually get a much better return by focusing on the things that you're already good at and becoming extraordinary at them Mm. because for me that's about giving yourself permission to not be perfect and and also to recognize that you can supplement the things that you're not great at with people who are really good at that and that's actually what makes a good team in an organization so um those have been really evolving learnings for me in the leadership space over the last couple of years you mentioned um, before that you know self-care and setting boundaries is really important in that role and and many CEO type roles. Um, what what do you practice? What's important for your self care? Um, look, a, f- a few things. So, um, firstly, I'm a single parent, so I have um, I have my girls with me week on, week off with their dad. So, being able to switch off from work mode and go into you know go into relating to my family mode, my partner and my kids, that's incredibly important for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't like too many intrusions into their time, so I t- tend to to set a firm boundary there. Um, in my weeks when they're not with me, I tend to go a little bit harder at work. But what I've what I've started a practice of is actually spending time away from Sydney. Um, every second weekend to the degree that I can, um, getting down to the south coast and just looking at really big horizons, really big oceans and immersing myself in green and blue because I find increasingly that helps reset. Um, and in in other, <laughs> in other <clears throat> really funny downtime, I have, since I was a kid, I was, I was the first generation of kids that had access to computer games, right? So when I was about 10, I got an Atari, 
thought it was the best thing ever <laughs> and have pretty much always had a game that I'm playing. And for me at the moment, it's Pokemon Go. I am hardcore. I am like like elite level player and it's and I play hard when I play. And so for me, that just gets me into an alternate universe and it takes up so little of the front of the brain. Yeah. I find that it just allows the back of my brain to do all of that processing and, and sorting out that, you know, that's just so necessary, um, you know, because when, when you're at work and working hard, it takes everything in there. And sometimes you just need to park that bit and do something that's a little bit mindless and easy. Yeah. So you find it a really good way to be mindful and in the present moment. Mm, mm, mm. I also, um, you know, share your thoughts about the importance of nature and getting out in Sydney mm. in the blue, blue and the green. And I did something very unusual last uh, Saturday. Um, there's a an author called uh, Colin Brady, and he's done all these like <laughs> ridiculous things, like cross the the uh, Antarctic uh, self-supported, go on a rowboat from. Um, South America down to Antarctica, like, and been to Everest twice. But um, when COVID really happened, he got really frustrated because everything was locked down. And so he decided to duplicate what he did in Antarctica. And in Antarctica, he basically moved for 12 hours a day for 53 days straight. And so during COVID, he decided to, you know, go for a 12-hour walk again and uh, just found that to be a wonderful escape and uh and the whole thing was you're completely separated from everyone you know there's no mm. phone there's no anything mm. and so i took that challenge last uh last saturday and um i i live uh at near lane cove national park and so walked all the way over over a 12 hour period up to um hornsby hornsby station and fantastic an area i know very well i grew up in lane cove there you go. There you go. And, and, and it is um, it is amazing to just really cut yourself off, to turn it into airplane mode and just to have no distractions for that period of time. And there is something very special about being immersed in the nature. And, the, and there's more and more evidence to talk about, you know, the, the resilience-building qualities of nature. And mm. um, yeah, it, it is great to be able to plan those sorts of things. Mm, it is fantastic, and I, I find because I was, I was dragged around on bushwalks as a kid and resented it at the time. <laughs> but now I'm actually coming back around to it in adulthood because I, I realise the value of it. And it's it's funny. I think you, you find your body actually yearns to get out in nature if you haven't done it for a while, you know. And if you're tuned into that, it's good to listen. Yeah, that's certainly the case for me. I go a bit mm. crazy if I don't have some time there, which is uh, mm. which is which is uh, really good. When you think about um, leading your teams in in the shelters, um, you mentioned also that it's it's a very high stress environment. How mm. do you keep a tabs on not just your own well being, but those of the people that are working for you? Yeah, look, I think there's both formal and informal ways that you can do that. And I think that formally, um, one of the things that we know is that when you're working in things like domestic and family violence, if you are on the front line, you will hear a lot of really awful things, like really awful things. Mm. And it is very, very easy to take on what we call vicarious trauma. Mm. And so 
you actually have to have a system for debriefing that and you have to be rigorous about that. I do it. Like mm-hmm. every, like every, uh, around every month to six weeks, I will have a debriefing session with a, you know, with a professional counsellor because if you don't manage it, it will bubble up in really, really challenging ways. And for staff on the front line, that is a priority for us. So it is about the collective and professional debriefing that's done, but it's also the peer-to-peer debriefing that's really, really important and being able to workshop through the difficult or the challenging issues with a manager who's really good and for us to have those systems in place that support that because the last thing that we would want is for people to burn out. You know, it is so important to prevent that and also to acknowledge that there are steps before burnout. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, like, the pandemic made that really difficult because when we're all working from home, if you're working in domestic and family violence, a lot of workers will actually have a ritual where they, like, literally mentally close the doors before they step out Mm -hmm. of their Mm -hmm. workplace. And the reality of the pandemic was it bled over entirely. You know, you, you might be... You might be, um, you know, working with a client on Zoom, but also like homeschooling your kids, you know, and that's that's a blending of the spheres that um, can be incredibly difficult to manage. So I think the pandemic has actually heightened our awareness around that kind of thing and sensitised us to really good work practices in a formal sense. But I think for me, the, the, the informal stuff is also about how you lead and about just that laser focus on the mission, why we're different, why we're doing it this way, why it's important. And for me to be able to set up, um, you know, what we're doing against the broader context of, of, you know, of movements and changes in society. You know, for example, one of the reasons it's so hard to leave is because it's so hard to find somewhere affordable to go. A lot of you know, in a lot of major regional cities, the rental vacancy rates are well below 0.5%. And so all of those social factors um, and government policy settings will have a bearing on the work that we do. And being able to explain that to people will often set the frame for how they manage their work on a day-to-day basis. I really love how you proactively address vicarious trauma or and the stories you hear and what have you. And um, I've seen calls for other groups that work in stressful areas to do the same thing, but they're not always doing that. Why mm. do you, why did you um, consider that so important and put it in place proactively? What were, were there any, was someone that, um, you know, taught you that or explained that, or is it something that you just came to realisation yourself? Um, like for me, it's about the ethics of care work. Um, this is about this. You know what? What we are trying to do is prevent harm. We do not want harm to come to people on our watch. I mean, aside from the work cover responsibilities that are, you know, that are of high standards, you need to provide a safe workplace for your employees. That's a legal baseline. But I think there's also a moral obligation that goes above that, which is when you are dealing in difficult stories and hearing the worst of what people do to one another every single day, Mm -hmm. you need to have the structures in place to protect your longevity to continue that work because Mm -hmm. I have such an enormous respect for the women in our services who do this day in and day out and I want to protect them and buffer them Mm -hmm. from um, the worst impacts of that to whatever degree that I can because they're ex- like this is a professional job you know I think 
um, responding to domestic and violence requires a high level of professionalism, an incredible level of empathy. You're working with people and you're essentially taking their emotional temperature all day, every day, and responding to that and pushing them a little bit when they need it and mm. supporting them when they just can't get there and being their cheerleader when, you know, when they step through towards their own goals. And so being able to do that is is a professional job and we need to support that. And so for me, like the the supports around that are, are, are actually a no-brainer. And I and I do not want people to burn out from this work. I want to preserve them. Um, but also it's a knowledge again of that greater picture of the workforce demographics and knowing that around somewhere between a quarter to a third of the domestic and family violence workforce are going to age out in the next five to ten years. And we've got a big gap in the middle and then a lot of younger grads coming through. And so we want to obviously protect the careers of those older workers as long as we can. Um, You know, find a way to supplement the middle but also support well the new young grads that are coming out and who are interested in this field so they don't burn out from the work or get, you know, or get... um, you know, or feel disenfranchised, disenfranchised or unsupported when they come into the workplaces. Yeah. I have a, uh, a female friend who went through real abuse, not so much physical abuse, but real um, emotional, financial abuse. And um, what, what I found very interesting was that, you know, at one point they'd be really determined to leave and have a new start. And then it would change, you know, go back and go back and give another shot. Then, Really determined to leave this time, and then and then not. Is that sort of oscillation common with um, women who are trying to leave? Yeah. Yep. It it absolutely is, and what that represents is the cycle of abuse and how um, coercive control actually works. And that is is what happens is there's there's often you know there might have been an incident, and then there's there's a honeymoon period where the person mm-hmm. who is using abuse will say. I'm really sorry that happened. I'm going to change. They might go and have a few counselling sessions or what have you. But then slowly, slowly it slips back into the normal and then the tension will start to build again and again and again and then there might be a point of explosion and and the cycle repeats itself. And so it is that cycle that makes it incredibly difficult um, quite often for um you know, for someone who's experiencing the abuse to be able to leave because generally what happens is their self-esteem gets eroded a little bit more each time it happens mm-hmm. and their their sense, their locus of control and their ability to take, you know, assertive action um, just it, it gets harder and harder. And, and quite often what happens in relationships that do have coercive control is that their perspective on the world gets erased. Yeah. Um, Jess Hill calls it perspectivecide. And I think that's a really powerful term because if someone isn't allowed their own view of reality and how the world works and how they perceive events, you can end up thinking that you're crazy. Mm -hmm. And if you think that you're crazy and you can't cope and you'll never manage on your own because that's the messages that you keep getting, Mm -hmm. it is very, very hard to leave. So, um, you know, and that's, and it is knowledge of the way that coercive control and the cycle of abuse can work that is part of you know, that is part of the professional knowledge of domestic and family violence workers. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when you are speaking to younger people coming through, what what sort of um, advice do you give them when they ask? I would say that this is an incredibly rewarding career. Um, it is a career that is filled with meaning. 
that you need to get those issues to do with your boundaries and your outside interests and, and all of those kinds of things well set up early in your career to be able to be sustainable and to to keep going. Um, I would also say uh, I would also say to people to have an open mind, and I think one of the one of the things that I think really shocks people is that is that when you're working with women and children, um, you are often working with entrenched trauma. Um, you know, there might have been people who have experienced traumatic events from childhood, you know, from their earliest memories. And so an understanding of how trauma operates for people, particularly long-term trauma, is foundational to be able to do this kind of work. And, you know, and that can manifest in behaviours which might be difficult to understand or which might be challenging or which might be um, confronting at times. And so learning to understand what trauma does and learning to roll with that and learning to um, you know, learning to to maintain your your centre um, in the face of that, I think, is is an incredibly important skill that's part of learning the work well. Yeah, there's some very very good insights there, and I love the way that you stress about you know the meaning and purpose of it because I think that's mm. very very important when we have setbacks and knockbacks to just really pull back and think, well, this is what I'm doing and this is the difference mm. I can make. It's uh, increasingly, I think, um, purpose is becoming more and more important with successful workplaces. Mm. When you think about a high-performing team, what are the key elements that you think that are the foundations for that? Oh, well, in the case of my team, it's it's surrounding myself with people that are a lot smarter than me and know a lot more <laughs> in, a whole, in a whole bunch of, you know, in a whole bunch of different areas. You know, I don't, it's exhausting being, being the person who, who who has all of the solutions all of the time. I mean, who's got, who's got time for that? You know, you need to be surrounded by people who are really, really good at what they do. Um, you know, you need to pay them well. Um, you need to you need to provide them flexibility. You need to provide them understanding. You know, it goes back a little bit to what I was talking about at the beginning. You know, you need to recognise that these are not just your employees, but they have whole lives outside of work and whole responsibilities, and they're juggling all of those in their heads, and they bring that to work every day. Yeah. Um, and so, for me, to having a team who understands why we're here, you know, what our mission is, that you know, that our laser focus is on supporting women and children and if you keep that focus really clear what it does I, I always find too is it melts away a lot of the organizational politics or the sector politics it's mm -hmm. you know when when we first got started we were always working in somebody else's patch you know it was the, the government contracted things out by district and wherever we wanted to start something up we were notionally in someone else's patch mm. and so having a team who back you who know that we are there to meet a need that is not being met and that is our accountability mm. um you know it, it helps um it helps maintain a strength and a unity i think but um you know i i'm also a real fan of hiring for cultural fit and and then building the skills after that, um, you know we we had some learnings with that over the course mm. of our, um, you know over the course of our um, of our life where we've hired people who have exceptional technical skills in their particular field, but they just weren't a mesh with us culturally. They didn't vibe with us, mm. and so for me that is now the number one principle of hiring people: are they a good fit? Because anything else we can train them for. Yeah. 
And and how do you assess that cultural fit? Is it a gut feel or uh, is it any more rigorous than that? Is it is it from experience? How do you how do you judge that? Uh, I I think once you've been around the block a few times, you tend to, <laughs> you know, you tend to rely pretty heavily on that gut feel if it served you really well. Um, you know, I, I remember watching a video, like like a couple of my staff interviewed someone and they asked if they could record the video because I couldn't be there. Um, you know, and I, I watched it back later and I think I felt within about the first 35, you know, 40 seconds that this person wasn't going to, you know, that they they presented well but there was just something about them that meant they weren't going to last with us. And we did subsequently employ that person and they only lasted six months and there was always something that just wasn't quite right. Yeah. And so for me, yes, that, that gut feel is important but also, um, but also, I think having a slow, like I would prefer to get it really right and have quite a slow hiring process and take my time over it than to actually have to do something really quickly and then undo it again later because there are huge costs to the organisation with that. So getting a good sense, getting a few of our staff members to to get a sense of a person is, is usually the way we do it. Very good. And I just am hearing more and more about the need for hiring for attitude and, and mm. uh, it, because, as you say, if they have the right attitude, they can learn anything. <laughs> if, yeah. the wrong, uh, if they have the wrong attitude, it's very, very hard to train for that or to turn that around. That's, uh, that's mm. Congratulations on, you know, the amazing work you've been doing, Annabelle, and um, we've covered lots and lots of really interesting things. But I'm just going to, I guess, return to my normal um, last question, and that is, um, you know, knowing what you know now, Mm. what advice would you give your 20-year-old self in in the first year of your law degree? What advice would you give that 20-year-old self based on Mm -hmm. what you've learned? I would say to her that you're on on the right path, even if you can't see it yet. Um, I would tell her that your brain is nowhere near finished growing yet and that there's plenty of learning to do. And I would also say to be patient because everything will unfold as it should. So trust yourself and back yourself. What great advice. Thanks so much, Annabelle. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Graham. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you've learned some practical tips that you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing more details about our simple, scalable WeCare365 mental health training programs, please visit us at wecare365.com.au. We strive to make these programs easily accessible practical and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a caring CEO you would like to see interviewed, please email us at support at wecare365.com.au. Thanks once again for joining us.